The time is now. Volume 6, episode 121. This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, your host and the vice chair of the Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor. It is hard to believe that it is November already. I feel like I'm beating a dead horse, and I'm sure all of you say the same thing. I feel like I just wished everybody a happy new year for 2022. Then I kept saying, I can't believe it's Memorial Day. Fast forward, couldn't believe it was Labor Day, Halloween, and now I'm going to be enjoying some good turkey in a few weeks. Yes, it's hard to believe the world is not stopping, and neither is human resources and employment law. There's a lot going on in the world right now in those areas, so let's get right to it. Today is my top five developments in the HR and employment law world that you all should know. Number one. The updated, yet again, independent contractor rule under the federal FLSA. We have been talking about this a lot, certainly over the last couple of years. It's one of those issues that has frustrated so many businesses because the rule has shifted quite a bit as we change political winds in Washington, D.C. Who knows what will happen just a couple of years from now, but for the moment... We have a new proposed test by the United States Department of Labor that will determine whether companies can classify a worker as an independent contractor or not for wage and hour purposes under the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act. You will remember that the test was put in its current form in the last days of the Trump Republican administration. It was published back in January 2021, and it made it easier for companies to successfully classify individuals as independent contractors as opposed to employees. Why does this matter? Well, as you all know, for the FLSA, you are only protected as an individual if you are an employee. You will be given certain minimum wage and overtime protections if you're a covered employee under the FLSA. If you are an independent contractor, you are out of luck. You are not protected for FLSA purposes. Under the current rule, there are five factors to guide the independent contractor analysis, but two of them were weighted. Two of them were considered to be core factors. One, the nature and degree of control that the business has over the worker. And number two, the extent to which the worker has an opportunity to share in the profit or loss of the services provided. Really, only if both of those factors do not go the same way and prompt the same conclusion, do you then go and look at the other three factors. So again, even though currently there are five factors, those two are weighted as core factors. Now, 
The United States Department of Labor, here we are under the Biden administration, of course, has proposed a new rule that really goes back to the pre-2021 rule and eliminates this weighted analysis. The new proposed rule goes back to a six-factor totality of circumstances test. Totality of circumstances. So for some people, it's a more appropriate test because you are looking at all of the factors that might help determine whether someone should truly be an employee or an independent contractor. To other people, it's much more of an unwieldy rule. It's hard to tell companies or it's hard to be that company trying to decide how to guide itself, how to behave itself when it comes to classification. Not only when the rules seem to change every four or so years, but when the rule itself is so dependent on a case-by-case analysis with very little in the way of being guided by precedent. The new proposed rule goes back to this, as I said, six-factor totality of circumstances, none of which factor is weighted more than the other. It requires all six factors to be considered. And in fact, the Department of Labor has suggested that there could be other factors in addition to these six that might be analyzed if they are relevant, if there is another factor that is relevant to this issue of how much control is being exercised should this worker be considered an employee or an independent contractor. But what are the six factors under the new proposed test? One, the opportunity for profit or loss depending on the managerial skill of the worker. In other words, does the worker have such managerial skill so that the worker is really dependent on himself or herself herself, uh, for success or failure in performing whatever services are being performed? Factor number two, what investments are being made by the worker and the employer? Is the worker having skin in the game, making investments to either capital or to tools or other aspects of the services being performed such that an individual can be said to be entrepreneurial and perhaps an independent contractor because of that. Factor three, what is the degree of permanence of the working relationship? Is there an exclusive relationship where the worker cannot perform services for anyone other than the contracting entity? Factor four, the nature and degree of control that is exercised, in fact, or reserved by the employer over the worker. That could be level of general supervision, control over scheduling, negotiating rates. Factor five, the extent to which the work performed is an integral part of the employer's business. This is the factor that I think we may see the most litigation about. And it may be the factor that causes the most problem, particularly in an industry such as transportation or the gig industry, where you have app-related companies where their entire core business is based on the drivers who are performing driving services for that business. If that work, the driving, is the integral part of the company's business, this factor may result in findings that individual workers are more likely going to be considered employees than independent contractors. Factor number six, 
looks at the skill and initiative. Does the worker have some sort of specialized skill in performing the particular work? Or is the worker primarily or even solely dependent on unique training given to that worker by the company? Again, the Department of Labor has made it clear that those six factors are not only not weighted so that they have to be given equal weight in the analysis, but it's also non-exhaustive. There may be, as I said, additional factors that can be considered if they would be relevant to a particular set of circumstances. It's also important to note that while this new rule is getting all of the press, again, it only applies to an an independent contractor employee analysis for purposes of the federal FLSA. There are other tests out there. Certainly, there are other tests on the state level for purposes of wage and hour questions. But even outside the wage and hour context, there are other independent contractor tests that still exist for purposes of things like Title VII, the IRS, and tax-related issues. The bottom line is that if this new proposed rule gets published as a final rule and becomes effective, it's likely that more individuals would be deemed employees than under the current rule that was created by the Republican Trump administration. If you want to put forward some comments, either on your own or on behalf of some group or trade organization or association, you have an opportunity to do that for the next five or so weeks. The Department of Labor has extended the public comment period to express opinion on this 184-page proposed new rule. The deadline for public comment is December the 13th of 2022. Number two of my top five developments that you should know, the EEOC has issued a new poster. You know, there are certain postings that are required from an HR perspective to be posted in a conspicuous place for employees to see and be advised of their rights. The old EEOC poster was called EEO is the law, and the new poster is called Know Your Rights. Whether intentionally or not, the new poster title is certainly a little bit more direct, I think, and one might argue a little bit more tilted to employees, those whose rights have to be known, those whose rights are being highlighted, more than a mere neutral statement of EEO is the law. The new poster summarizes the rights of employees under the laws enforced by the EEOC, and it does include specific information on how aggrieved individuals can file a charge with the EEOC. The new poster provides additional information about how discrimination is broadly defined not only to include harassment, but also such forms of discrimination as pregnancy discrimination, sexual orientation, and gender identity. The new poster, of course, must be conspicuously posted on the employer's premises where other notices are customarily posted. If the company does not have a physical location or if you have employees who work remotely, it is okay and fully compliant if you do a digital posting of this poster. You can find the new poster at eeoc.gov or feel free to reach out to me and I'm happy to provide a copy to you. Number three of our top five developments you should know right now. 
The National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, is still in the news. Rather than have this as a trick or treat on October 31st, the NLRB General Counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, waited one day until November 1st to issue a memorandum urging the board to find that it is a presumptive violation of the National Labor Relations Act if an employer's use of electronic monitoring and automated artificial intelligence in a manner that tends to interfere with or prevent employees from engaging in protected concerted activity. Remember, that's the crux of the NLRA, the ability of employees to engage in protected concerted activity. I repeat this often, we're not just talking about unionized workforces, always critical to keep in mind that the NLRA applies to unionized and non-unionized facilities. Interesting and important quote coming from General Counsel Abruzzo's memo. Quote, It is well documented that employers are increasingly using new technologies to closely monitor and manage employees. In warehouses, for example, some employers record workers' conversations and track their movements using wearable devices, security cameras, and radio frequency identification badges. On the road, some employers keep tabs on drivers using GPS tracking devices and cameras, and some employers monitor employees who work on computers, whether in call centers, offices, or at home, using key loggers and software that takes screenshots, webcam photos, or audio recordings throughout the day. End quote. General Counsel Abruzzo does recognize the need to account for a company's legitimate business interests when it comes to monitoring whether for productivity or some other legitimate business interest. Where General Counsel Abruzzo has a concern, however, is if the electronic monitoring is used too broadly. And so Abruzzo is asking the board to adopt a broader framework to address the new technologies and the increasing use of them. So stay tuned. We will likely hear more on this issue, and we'll keep you posted if the NLRB acts further on this. It is a big issue, of course, beyond the NLRB. The EEOC continues to talk quite a bit about artificial intelligence and the use of artificial intelligence when it comes to employment-related decisions. Current EEOC commissioners Keith Sonderling and Andrea Lucas have been very outspoken and engaging in a lot of outreach with businesses, trying to uh, help them comply and understand that Title VII issues are implicated by the use of artificial intelligence. States like New York around the country are also getting in the game, enacting requirements, for example, that certain notice be given to employees if the employer is monitoring electronic communications. If an employer is using technology of certain kind in employment-related processes, we will stay on top of this. And oh, here's a tease. We have at Cozen O'Connor an upcoming two-part webinar series. Next week, November 15th, Tuesday, and the following week, Tuesday, November 22nd, a two-part series on the challenges and regulatory obstacles to artificial intelligence and employment-related decisions. 
If you have not already received a registration link for either or both of those two parts of this series, please reach out to me and I'm happy to send you a copy of the registration link. Number four of our top five developments you need to know right now. We have been talking about this big trend around the country regarding pay equity. One of the ways that jurisdictions have tried to increase pay equity is by increasing pay transparency. Again, the thought process is the more you have transparency, the more you have equity. We talked about this a couple of years ago when we saw certain states enacting salary history bans. The point there, we're not going to allow you to perpetuate wage and salary discrimination by continuing to rely on discriminatory pay practices that an applicant had in prior jobs. So we won't allow you to ask for that applicant's salary history, certainly at least at the beginning of the recruitment process. We'll fast forward a little bit to 2021-2022. States around the country, Colorado, California, as well as other localities, require certain wage-related disclosures to applicants and current employees. And again, the one that is making news is the one that had a new statute effective just last week on November 1st, 2022, New York City. Originally, it was enacted with an effective date back in May, but because there were a lot of concerns and pushback by businesses, that effective date was pushed to November 1st when it now has become effective. What is this salary transparency law in New York City require? Well, any advertisement for a job, a promotion, or a transfer opportunity that could be performed in New York City now must contain a good faith salary range for the particular position being advertised. So there's a lot to break down there and a lot of unique situations because as you know New York City is not unique in the sense of we've got people who are not working in physical offices as much anymore they're working in the field they're working at home. If the job being advertised or being posted can be performed in whole or in part in New York City whether that's someone performing the work in an office or in the field or remotely from the employee's home, but if it's being done in whole and part in New York City, or if there's a chance that the person who is successful in obtaining this advertised job could be working in New York City, you are required under this new law to provide a minimum and maximum salary range for that position. The range cannot be open-ended. You cannot say $20 per hour and up. You cannot say maximum of $75,000 per year. You have to give a minimum and a maximum range of the rate. Now, we're only talking base wage, base salary. You do not have to provide such things as health insurance, life insurance, paid time off, vacation days, overtime pay, commissions, bonuses, all of those things, some of which, by the way, you may want to because some of these types of benefits or perks you may feel as a company 
hey, this is how I'm going to attract good talent by advertising these benefits. I don't want individuals, now that I have to include a base salary or base wage, I don't want them to think that that's the only form of compensation. So the new law does not prohibit you from identifying any of these other forms of compensation. All it does require of you is to put the minimum and maximum of your range. It's important to note as well that the new New York City law also does not require you to create a job advertisement in the first place or a written job advertisement in the first place. You can still have a one-on-one -on -one recruitment discussion. You can still have recruitment opportunities, transfer opportunities discussed in person by phone. It is only when you have a written description of an available job, promotion, or transfer opportunity that you now have to meet the requirements of this New York City law if you have four or more employees. How do you decide what the range is going to be? That's where employers seem to be having the most trouble right now, at least in the early few days of this New York City law. There is a good faith requirement. Good faith means that that is the minimum and maximum salary range that the organization honestly believes at the time of the advertisement that they are willing to pay the successful applicant. Now, a fair reading of this suggests that you're not prevented from going outside of that range in a particular situation. Let's say you had a good faith basis for having the minimum and maximum salary range that you advertised but later on, here comes an applicant who, because of his or her experience or other qualifications, geographic area, labor market shortage, demand, whatever the legitimate reason is that warrants you to decide, hey, I need to go outside of this grid, you're not prevented from doing so. What I would caution you, though, is you want to continue to monitor not only what you have put in as your good faith range, but also what you're doing in fact after you have published and advertised your good faith range. Because if you find yourself going outside of the range, either below the floor or above the ceiling, more often than you're within the range, then you may open yourself up to a question of, hey, is that good faith range really a good faith range, at least as of now? if you continue to use that range or if you have recurring advertisements or postings that use a prior range. It's got to be in good faith. The good faith has to be at the time of the advertisement. And it's already become an issue. As many of you, I'm sure, have seen news clippings regarding some early job postings by employers here in New York City, which seem to be testing this notion of a good faith obligation. So what's the issue of if you're going to comply or not comply with this? Well, obviously, uh, if you have a violation, you can have administrative penalties and fines by the New York City Commission on Human Rights, which is the agency that enforces this new law. If a current employee decides to challenge you on this, they can have a private cause of action and seek damages under the New York City human rights law. You have a morale issue potentially. 
Now that you are having to advertise these minimum and maximum ranges, what if you've got current employees that either feel that they are not even close to the range or they're on the lower side of that range? Is that going to lead to, at best, a morale problem in the organization? At worst, a potential pay equity claim. It may lead to a whole host of other issues. Now that you're doing what the law wants you to do, that is, be transparent with your pay, we also have to keep in mind that employees cannot be prevented or retaliated against because they discuss such terms and conditions of their workplace as compensation. Maybe they're posting concerns or issues on social media. Maybe they're all getting around the virtual or the physical water cooler and talking about this stuff. Again, that brings us back to protected concerted activity under the National Labor Relations Act. So you'll need to be careful to the extent that you are thinking about imposing some sort of discipline against an employee or a group of employees who are now making comments about pay that you've been forced to be transparent about. As I said, this is an issue that we are seeing crop up all around the country. So check your jurisdiction if you are a multi-jurisdictional organization to see if you've got new rules that you have to comply with when it comes to job postings and job advertisements. As far as New York goes, it's not going to be likely limited to New York City for very long. The New York State Legislature up in Albany passed a virtually identical bill. It is now sitting on Governor Hochul's desk for signature. Many of us suspect that Governor has not signed sort of controversial kinds of bills like this until after the election. But assuming that Governor Hochul does win re-election as New York's governor, we do expect this to be something that is signed and therefore put into law New York statewide. Which brings us finally to number five of our top five developments you should know about now. Today is election day, November 8th, 2022. It is a good time to remind all of you and for you to remind all of your employees that it's a good thing to exercise your civic duty, exercise the civic benefit that we all are so lucky to have, and go out and vote. Let your voice be heard in the appropriate manner. It's also a good opportunity to remind all of you and your organizations of a couple of points here. I say it quite a bit, but 2022 has seen a blurring of lines between work life and personal life. Used to be 10, 20 years ago, employees were a lot more reticent to start talking about personal issues and social issues on work premises during work time. The lines have been blurred, whether it's because of social media, mass communication, or for a whole host of other reasons. Employees are talking about issues of politics, social justice issues, religion, with their co-workers, often intertwined with their work. Regardless of what side of the aisle you are on, I think it's fair to say that we are in an extremely polarized time. When it comes to politics, people have strong feelings, strong emotions on both sides. And again, whatever side of the aisle you're on, as an employer, 
You want to make sure that you are not necessarily taking adverse action against an individual employee or group of employees because they are expressing some political affiliation or some political view. There are circumstances, of course, where you may be able to take certain kind of action depending on the statement or conduct or depending on how it may be tied to the nature of your underlying business. The takeaway is do not be knee-jerk in your reaction. Don't just say, hey, I don't like the statement or the conduct of this employee. It's an at-will situation. I am entitled to discipline or terminate the employment of him or her. Analyze the situation before you take any action. Maybe it's not a direct political sentiment that's being expressed. We also know, because as I just said, we're in such polarized times right now and there is such emotion for so many issues, social justice issues, post-Dobbs when it comes to abortion rights, hashtag Me Too, the George Floyd murder, Black Lives Matter, so many things going on there where people are so exhausted, people feel so energized and so charged up about so many things. You can have what starts out as an adult discussion, as I refer to it, which can then lead to something worse. It can go from an adult appropriate discussion to a more inappropriate discussion where one individual, one participant to the discussion feels as if he or she is harassed or discriminated against because of national origin because of gender, pregnancy, disability, name your protected class. So you want to make sure as an organization that while you're allowing for employees to engage in adult discussion, appropriate discussion, you also want to make sure that you know what the boundaries are and that you're enforcing the boundaries. The rules of the road when it comes to anti-harassment, anti-discrimination, anti-retaliation don't cease to exist simply because the statement or the conduct is no longer being had within the four walls of an office. Simply because it may be occurring on social media if it's impacting the workplace. Simply because it's outside, after hours, at a restaurant, at some off-site activity. If it's impacting the workplace, if it's impacting a co-worker, a colleague's ability to do his or her job, you need to be cognizant of whether the conduct or the statement rises to the level of inappropriate harassment, discrimination, or retaliation. So the bottom line for number five here, just be sensitive to the times we're in. Yes, as an organization, you have the right to demand that employees are working when they're supposed to be working. You have the right to demand a certain level of productivity by your employees. But employees have rights too. And before you decide as an organization to take sort of action because employees are engaging in a personal, professional, social, political, religious, they're exercising some right, they're voicing some concern, analyze the situation first and make sure that you're not running afoul of federal, state, or local law. Well, that's a half hour, and that's your top five issues that right now you need to be thinking about. 
There will be more on the way. I've got some great guests and some great episodes still planned in the last seven weeks of 2022. Can't believe what that sounds like. The last seven weeks of 2022. Until the next time, though, I hope you, your colleagues, your friends, your families all continue to be safe, healthy, and, of course, happy. And I hope all of your labor is productive.